0: Alrighty, well uh, do keep that passage open in front of you, that's what we're going to be looking at together. And afterwards, uh, as soon as I finish speaking, there'll be just a short question time as usual. So if you have a question uh, that you want to ask, feel free to save it up till then, or write it down on your connection card or whatever. Uh, You'll see that the passage, if you've got a Holman, if you've got one of these church Bibles, they they quite helpfully break it up uh, into three parts. I think the passage does fall into those three parts. Uh, they're not original, that's, that's the kind of publishers, but I think they're, they're really quite helpful. Those three parts kind of sum up what Paul is talking about, and they sum up the Christian life, uh, which is pretty much about three things, faith, love, and hope. JJ's already been uh, talking about this this evening. Uh, we saw that a few weeks ago. If you flick back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verse 3. Paul says, we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith Labor of love and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those three things, faith, hope, and love, uh, faith, love, and hope, really sum up what the Christian life is about. Uh, Then later on in the same chapter, verse 9, see how Paul describes what the Thessalonians did when the word of God came to them. He says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us. From the coming wrath. I take it that those three verbs there, turn, serve, and wait, correspond to the nouns earlier faith, love, and hope. Okay? You can have a think about that maybe a little bit later. But in chapter four, I reckon Paul is still working with this threefold paradigm. This time, faith and repentance, faith and turning becomes holiness in verses one to eight. And then verses nine to twelve are about love, and verses 13 to 18. Are about hope. So, with that in mind, let's dive in uh, just to the first section of the chapter. It's about holiness. Uh, All three sections repeat that word, encourage, there. You see that in verse one? The whole point of this chapter is to encourage us. And this first section is meant to encourage us to live holy lives. Now, it's not that the Thessalonians had a particular problem in this area uh, and Paul is rebuking them. No. Uh, They were already living according to his instruction. He says, just as you receive from us how you must walk and please God, as you are doing, do so even more. So, this is a letter of encouragement. And I want to say that uh, this evening, I want to encourage you as well. I think there's lots to be encouraged about uh, the way 645 uh, is as a community. Uh, I think 645 Northmead is a wonderful community to be a part of. I hope you agree because we have God's word. Delivered to us through his apostles. We know the commands of the Lord Jesus. And so we walk to please him. And it's wonderful to see. Uh, maybe I get to see uh, more than any of you. I love coming to church every week. Uh, having conversations with brothers and sisters. Who are going through maybe difficult times. Or you know, maybe they've had a great week. Maybe, maybe they've had a bad week. But they are walking to please God. That's the consistent thing. Of course we always struggle. But I'm encouraged every week to see uh, my brothers and sisters here uh, at 6.45 walking to please God. And and that's how Paul was feeling about the Thessalonians. But it doesn't mean that he tells them, so, you know, just sit back and relax. uh, Rest on your laurels and, you know, just wait for Jesus to come back. uh, And then, you know, you'll get a good pat on the back at that point. Uh, Quite the opposite. He says now is the time to step it up a gear. Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians is that they abound more and more in pleasing God. And you don't want to be outdone by the Thessalonians, do you? Even the very idea, though, that you can please God, isn't that a cause for rejoicing? You, little, you know, incy-wincy you, can bring pleasure to the God of the universe. It tells you something about God, doesn't it? God is not a stingy, niggardly old man. He is a loving father, a kind and good father who loves to see his children, even with all their mistakes, even as they are frail and weak and do the wrong thing, as they try and walk to please Him, He smiles. He smiles down on them. He's not a kind of distant God. He's not a God looking down on you and frowning. He's a God smiling. As He sees His handiwork within you, He smiles as you walk to please Him. You bring Him pleasure. But this, this, this first section... Is about holiness. Holiness means being different. Four times in this paragraph, the word holiness or sanctification appears. Uh, In the original, those words are just the same. This is God's will for your life. And aren't people looking for that, by the way, aren't they? In the coincidences and kind of, you know, in the clouds or somewhere. Uh, but, but no, God is not to be found in the coincidences and in the clouds uh, and in the kind of signs somewhere. No, there's a really clear sign and it's written here. God's will for your life is your holiness, uh, your sanctification, which is to be separate, to be different, to be different to the world. Notice in verse 5, Paul says you are not to be like the nations, the Gentiles, the nations who don't know God. That's the key idea here. Holiness is about being different, being separate. We are to be different to the nations, to the Australians around us. We are to be un-Australian. They can go on in their sexual immorality, but we will abstain. Uh, Their divorce rates, for no good reason, can keep climbing and climbing and climbing, but we will remain faithful to one another. They can keep adding as many letters as they like, to their LGBTIQA plus nonsense. But we will never affirm what God detests. Their viewing habits can become increasingly vulgar and perverse, but we will delight in what is good and praiseworthy. Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, Pornea. That's the Greek word, and it means any kind of sexual relation outside of heterosexual marriage, whether it's fornication... Adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, bestiality. It's all sexual immorality. And we are to abstain. Uh, Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honor, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. Notice how Paul touched on every aspect of our nature right he begins and ends with what we know and in between he talks about our bodies and our desires uh, our fellow citizens are ignorant they don't know how to control their own bodies and they don't know god so they dishonor their bodies and are led astray by lustful desires we ought to be completely different we ought to have our bodies under control Our bodies don't control us. We're not animals carried along by hormones and instinct. We can control our bodies. And we will use them in service to God, in holiness and honor. Our desires do not control us. We control them. Uh, Don't people so often uh, kind of abdicate responsibility for their actions, claiming that their desires. They just can't help it. I you know, can't keep my hands to myself. Well, I can, but I don't really want to. We put to death lust in our lives. And by God's Spirit, we reorient our desires so that we hate what is of the flesh and we love what God loves. Now, we all used to walk like the Gentiles do. And we will still struggle. Uh, you know, today you may have gone through a great battle. This, this week you may have been going through a great battle and you may have been losing. Uh, we've all done things we're deeply ashamed of. There's no point pretending when we get to church. Uh, I've done things most of you will, never, uh, you will never hear about because I'm so ashamed of them. I don't, I don't go around talking about them. You know, don't think that just because I've got a British accent that I'm somehow, uh, you know, sinless and pure and just always upstanding and moral or something. Or the bad guy in every film. Uh, neither of these are true, okay? But neither of them. We've all done things uh, we, we, are, we should be deeply ashamed of and we repeat them. But remember this. We are no longer ignorant of God. So we must live holy lives. We must put to death evil behavior evil desires and we must live holy lives. We know God. We know God as our father and friend. We know his holiness. We know his majesty and power. We know his generous love and his hatred, his furious hatred of sin. So we refuse to participate any longer in rebellion against him. You can't remain in both camps. You're either with God or against him. You're either part of the world or not. We have to be different, you see. We have to be holy. And remember that our transformation needs to be more than just merely external. It needs to be internal as well. Remember this when you struggle with sexual immorality. We must fight for holiness at every level. Don't settle for outward control uh, while, while you burn inwardly. That won't last Uh, Our war needs to be at every level until we are spotless through and through. We need to keep pressing on until that day when... Did you see how Paul describes it at the end of the last chapter? Chapter 3, verse 13. Remember last week we prayed for this day in chapter 3, verse 13. The day when our hearts would be blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus With all his saints. We long for that day and we start living it out now. We start embracing it now in our lives, ridding ourselves of every perverse practice, uh, disgusted by such practices in our hearts, and seeking to put to death their irrational hold over us. On that day, it will be broken. Now, in verse 6, Paul goes on, sexual immorality is not a victimless crime. It is always destructive. Uh, There are two victims that Paul focuses on. Number one, Paul describes sexual immorality as a sin against our brother. When we commit sexual immorality, we defraud our brother. We steal from him. We steal his wife or his daughter or his innocence. We rob him of the pleasure of pure, intimate relationships. Which are far more precious than gold. And furthermore, sexual immorality is not a crime you will get away with. You are the second victim because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. If you won't do it for your brother, do it for yourself. What you do in secret will be exposed. The judge is at the door, he is well aware of your depraved activities, he has been watching you. Be warned. Unless you repent, you will not escape, for our God has not called us to impurity, but to sanctification, holiness. And therefore, the person who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit. Be warned who you're listening to tonight, because it's not just me. If it was just me, why would we all be here to listen to me? There'd be no point, would there? I've got some good ideas, but they're not that good. But we gather every week to hear God, don't we? And God is calling us out of immorality and into holiness. He is calling us from the old lives that we used to live, just like all those around us, just like all the Aussies around us, He's calling us to live new, sanctified Christian lives. And those who continue to live impure, unholy lives, we we must rebuke them for not heeding the call of God. Uh, I take it what Paul is describing here is what Jesus uh, might describe as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in its most extreme form. If we continue in our hearts to reject God, we will face his vengeance. And we can't just pretend that we have his Holy Spirit if the fruit of the Spirit doesn't show in our lives. Now that brings us to the the second section of the chapter, where Paul begins to focus in on brotherly love. The paragraph is bracketed by two references to what the Thessalonians don't need. In verse 9, Paul says, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And then at the end of the section, and I'm afraid the Holman sort of obscures the original wording just a little, but it's exactly the same in the Greek. In verse 12, Paul says, the Thessalonians should work so that they don't need anyone. The Holman says, uh, so that they won't be dependent on anyone. That's helpful, um, but I just see, want you to see that it's bracketed. Uh, by the the same statement. You see, the point in verses 9 and 10 is that the Thessalonians have all they need from God. God himself teaches them personally. Now, God, uh, don't don't misunderstand this verse. God teaches us through the words of his apostles. Paul is not talking um, about some kind of mysticism as if the spirit uh, within them moves among them to kind of move them to love one another in some mystical way. No, he's just reaffirming what he's already said in Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verse 5, when he said, uh, the word that we brought to you did not come in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, this is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the message about God that you heard from us, notice that, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the message of God which also works effectively in you believers. See, someone might say, look, I don't need to listen to the message of the apostles because God himself teaches me by his spirit. And look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But that, that's utter nonsense and that's not what this verse is saying. That is absolutely wrong. Now Paul is saying that his words, which he brought to them, are not merely human words, but were, were the word of God. And they received them as the word of God. And that is a word that continues to work effectively in the Thessalonians so that they don't need any more instructions on this issue. Now, the second half of this section focuses on work. If you remember chapter 1, verse 3, Paul described how the Thessalonians labored because of their love. For one another, love expresses itself in labour, and that's what Paul is encouraging us to do here. Christians are to be good citizens, not stirring up trouble or promoting anarchy, not sticking their noses into everyone else's business in the name of gathering prayer points. We work with our own hands, uh, which means we, you know, for for one, we're not above none of us are above manual labour. You uh, labour with your own hands. Uh, And more to the point, we all ought to contribute something. We need to be workers. We don't just let other people do the work. At church or in society. That's why Christianity is very much dead against a a kind of socialism that allows generations of people just to take, take, take uh, and, and never to give. You know, there will always be those who, for whatever reason, can't work. That's fine. And the scriptures would encourage us as Christians to care for such people. But for people who refuse to work, who can work but refuse to work, that's an entirely different matter. Uh, In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10, Paul says, If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. Don't be tempted to feed him. He shouldn't eat if he's not willing to work. Very strong language. Government handouts should be withheld and the church should not prop up such self-centered laziness. Love expresses itself in labor. And in this community, we will throw ourselves uh, into working hard for each other, won't we? Into serving. And in our society, we ought to be known as those who throw ourselves into serving for the good of others, to love those around us And so we come to the last section of the chapter. Now, this section is about hope. And in short, uh, it answers three questions for us about hope. The who, the why, and the what. So let's start with the who. First of all, verse 13, who has hope? Only those who trust in Christ. Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope? Now, Paul is not talking about those who are asleep in church. Uh, we do grieve for them too, uh, and they they do have hope, um, possibly. But he's talking about the dead, isn't he? Those are the people who are asleep—Christians who have died. The reason he talks about them as asleep is not is not just he needs a euphemism. It's not that Christians kind of need to skirt around the issue because they can't handle it like so many non-Christians, he says they're asleep because one day they're going to wake up. Unlike unbelievers. Now you see that there are only two groups of people in the world. There are Christians, and then there are the rest. There are brothers and others. The difference, Christians have hope. When death strikes, everyone grieves. But the difference between Christians and the rest is that even in the face of death, Christians have hope, while the rest do not. Secondly then, why? Why do Christians have hope? Why can Christians be so confident even in the face of death? Two words, Jesus' resurrection. The first time I had to preach on this passage was at my grandfather's funeral. It was a few years ago now. And it just so happened that the funeral took place on April 4th, I remember that because uh, according to the best historical research, okay, we don't know the exact date because it's not written in the scriptures, but according to the best historical research, uh, it's most likely that Jesus died on April 3rd, AD 33, and he rose again on April 5th, AD 33. And it struck me as I was preaching to this congregation on April 4th that it was therefore a rather poignant day to consider the connection between my grandfather's death and the death of the Lord Jesus. Because, you see, there is a connection. Whenever Christians die, and my grandfather was a Christian man, whenever Christians die, because of their connection to Christ, they won't stay dead, but they'll follow Christ. They'll follow the same journey, if you like, as our Lord Jesus Christ. I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, when I was preaching, that 2,000 years ago, uh, or, or so, it was I think it was 1,981 years ago, Uh, most likely, Jesus was in the tomb on April 4th. And so was my grandfather. And the next day, I mean, I would get the shock of my life with my grandfather, but the next day, Jesus rose from the dead. And actually, I knew that my grandfather is going to rise from the dead. Maybe, Maybe not the very next day. Maybe not the day after that. But one day, he is going to have his own third day experience. He is going to rise from the dead because he is connected to Christ. So let me just sort of uh, explain briefly what happens. Uh, When Christ died, his body was put in a tomb. Okay, physically, we, you know, we can track his body, can't we? His body was taken down from the cross, and his body was put in a tomb. But spiritually, he went to be with his father. Uh, do you remember what he said to the thief on the cross? Today, you will be with me in paradise, he said. Now, then three days later, so, so his, his body goes down into the tomb. His soul, his spirit, is taken up to be with the father. He's in paradise. And then three days later, his body was resurrected, uh, reunited with his spirit, and following that, uh, bodily, he went to be with his father. Well, friends, the same journey is what Christians go on, because we are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. When we die, spiritually, we go to be with God. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, "'Today you will be with me in paradise.'" And that's true for all Christians. When you die spiritually, you join Christ in paradise. Paul says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, Paul says, When I'm at home in the body, I'm away from the Lord. But when I'm away from the body, I'm at home with the Lord. As soon as you die, you go to be in the presence of Christ with the thief on the cross and with all other Christians who have gone before you. But that's not the end of the story. We're not just looking forward to an eternal heaven uh, in a a spiritual place, uh, as spiritual sort of beings. Uh, At the last day, on the last day, and this is what Paul is describing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the last day, our bodies will be raised. The third day for all of us, so to speak. We will all rise bodily at the end of the world, just as Christ did. So you see friends it's not a matter of our hope is not a matter of wishful thinking nor of blind faith but of reasonable faith Jesus death and resurrection are historical facts that can be examined and tested just like any other historical events and unless you're blind it's obvious that he rose from the dead if you look carefully at the facts After Jesus resurrection he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days He walked around Galilee. Real people just like you and me saw him in the flesh and touched him with their hands. They ate with him and chatted with him. They were closer to him than you are to me right now. I don't know if you're planning on going out and telling anyone that I was speaking tonight. But if they didn't believe you, what would you think? Would you think that's a reasonable objection? Because I don't. What if we all went out and told them? You know what I mean? Jesus appeared to more than five hundred brothers at the same time. that's about five times this this audience this congregation this this audience they all they all saw him, some of them ate with him touched him over a period of forty days. It's nonsense to believe that he didn't rise from the dead. You'd have to be dead and blind and this is the basis of our hope. you see in verse fourteen paul says. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. In other words, the reason for our hope, the reason for our future hope, is that we rest on a a past event that's already happened that you can examine carefully yourself that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. And Paul says that this verifiable historical fact is the objective grounds upon which Christians can be assured that they will rise from the dead also. I think of it a bit like a train. It's as if Jesus is a locomotive, uh, the carriage with the engine at the beginning of uh, the train, and we're all the other carriages being pulled along behind him. Now, I don't want to push the analogy too far, but you know, we don't have our engine and all that stuff, but we're just connected to him. And because Jesus has gone through the tunnel of death and burst out into the light on the other side... We also, because we are united to Him by faith, by His Holy Spirit, because as it were, He's holding on to us and we're grabbing on to Him by faith, because He's made it through, we also will make it through to the tunnel on the other side. Our entrance into eternal life is guaranteed. Now, the Bible never promises us that we will bypass the tunnel. Christians grieve because we experience the decay and pain and sadness involved in death. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope because we are united to the one who has gone on before us and drags us on behind through death to everlasting life in the light on the other side. So thirdly and finally, let's look at the what of the Christian hope. What does the light at the end of the tunnel look like? It's summed up in, in a few words at the end of verse 17. I'm going to start reading from verse 15. For we say this to you by revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds, To meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That really sums up the essence of the Christian hope. When the Lord Jesus returns, those who trust in him will all be raised as he was. The Lord will demand back from the dirt those whom it has consumed, and the dirt will hurry to restore those it stole. Likewise, whether lost at sea or devoured in flames, all of God's people will rise and be given new bodies that will never wear out, that will never decay or die again. And on into eternity, we will always be with the Lord. The Christian hope is not a fantasy. It's real, and it's glorious, and it's personal. The Christian hope is eternal life, with each other and with our Lord our maker our saviour our sustainer our friend and our king so brothers and sisters let me encourage you with these words the Christian faith the the Christian life is about faith faith, hope and love faith that issues in holiness love that issues in labour working hard for the good of others and hope that will not disappoint us the hope of eternal life with the Lord now in a moment I'm going to pray but before we do that are there any questions that you want clarification on it's a big passage I know lots of things and there are some things that I didn't cover you're welcome to ask about any of them or anything else but just a few minutes for questions Absolutely wonderful question. Did everyone hear it? Um, so in the Apostles' Creed, uh, which you might be familiar with, it says um, that Christ descended into hell. Uh, I think into hell is a much better translation than to the dead, um, just because actually the Apostles' Creed already says that he died. So I don't really see why I would say it twice. Um, into hell seems much more sensible. Um, and... Uh, I, I, I think the, the what what I would hold um which is not by no means unique, is that Christ descended into hell on the cross okay so first of all, we all believe that it 's spiritual don 't we no no one believes it 's physical because you can track his body, we know where his body went, his body went from the from the cross to the tomb um, so his endurance his endurance uh, his experience of hell is a spiritual experience, and he is suffering. The essence of hell is being punished by God uh, because of your sin. And that's what Jesus is experiencing on the cross for us. So, On the cross, he's being punished by God for our sin. He's experiencing hell there. And at the end of that, he says it is finished because he has absorbed the full weight of God's wrath on the cross. Um, And at that point, it is finished. And so there's no sense in which... For three days he's doing some i don 't know journey through hell or any sort of stuff like that that's not happening uh, he goes to be with the father yeah brilliant question because it, it can be confusing I think some people yeah yeah uh, okay did everyone hear the question okay uh, first of all verse sixteen uh, the dead in Christ will rise first um, that that's that's physical. They're going to rise physically, um, and then sort of that led into. So, what does that mean for kind of cremation and whether people should get cremated? Yeah. Uh, so, a couple of things. Number one, notice that actually the 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 dead in Christ are coming from two directions. Um, in verse fourteen, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus, and then. Uh, from verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise, right, and and be caught up and will meet in the air. And, and I take it that's what's being described, is this, that the, those who are in Christ spiritually are being reunited with their uh, bodies and they're meeting God as they meet themselves, sort of thing. Uh, that sounded weird, but you know what I mean. Um, in terms of what that means for cremation, uh, I try to be clear, um, for one, that uh, God will demand back from the dirt and from the sea and from the flames. There is no sense in which your body could kind of be destroyed. And God's just like, Oh, I just can't get that one. That's just too tough. Um, no, you know, he made you from dust. He can make you again. He'll, he'll call you back. Um, and so I I think cremation is fine. I think my only question about, about it is what you want to say with it. Right. Um, in the sense of wh- when I get buried, I'm going to give my organs away to whoever um, whoever wants them, and that's fine. I'll I'll, I'll get them back. I mean, whatever. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know how it'll work, but that that's fine. That's no problem. Um, and uh, if you get cremated, that that's nothing. But any kind of say Eastern, you know, the influence of say Eastern religions um, with the kind of scattering to the nothingness or into the uh, no, oh, that that's absolute rubbish. So Christians have traditionally wanted to kind of bury their dead as if they're looking asleep, do you know what I mean? So that then they fall asleep and they will rise again. Do you know what I mean? That that kind of works with the the image of burial. But if you're just like, well, for practical reasons or for whatever reason, you can do that. Um, I'd just be cautious if someone was like, I want to be scattered across the Himalayas or something because we become one with the universe. Well, no, we don't. So that's nonsense. Yeah, Yeah, but that ought not to worry us or anything, of course, right? Um, And if you want to explore a little bit more about the resurrection, um, which which you should, especially if you've not looked into it a lot, um, I think 1 Thessalonians 4, great passage to think more about. Um, Go to Philippians 1 and 1 Corinthians 15 um, and obviously look at the stories of Jesus' resurrection as well. Um, And... um, because this is our sure and certain hope. And it's actually really exciting to think that we're not just going to be sort of heavenly, ethereal, something or others. We're actually going to be bodies in a real place. We're going to be talking with each other, eating with each other uh, for the rest of eternity and with our Lord. So let me close in prayer. Gracious Father God, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for encouraging us tonight. Please help us to trust you to trust you and not be like those around us who don't know you and who refuse to live uh, righteous and godly lives. We pray for help especially. You'd help us to put to death sexual immorality as we face temptation. We pray, Father, that in your mercy you would help us to be holy. We pray, Father, for help to love one another, to throw ourselves into service into working really hard so that we can love each other and love those around us. And we do pray, Father, that you would fill us with uh, the vision of the future that is grounded in the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us in the past. Help us to look forward with great expectation and hope to that day when we will be blameless and in your presence forever. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.